Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, one person's trash is another person's treasure, as the saying goes. And a decade ago, two women in Washington state put that notion to the test, setting up something called the Buy Nothing Project. Well, it was hugely popular. It now has millions of members right around the world. We meet one of the co-founders to find out more about how it began and how it works. Well, just last week, we were talking about how warm a winter it had been so far. That was then. A polar vortex has sent a good chunk of the country, especially anything west of Ontario, into a deep freeze, minus 30s in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and northern BC, and the territories. So we find out how cold weather impacts the body and how to stay warm. And they've been hoping for a deep freeze in parts of the north where winter roads are vital arteries for many communities and the warm weather so far had delayed their opening. Will this cold snap be enough? And what are some of the longer term solutions? New documents accessed by the Canadian press reveal the federal government was warned two years ago that housing and other services would be put under real strain with proposed immigration targets. We speak with the former Director General of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada about why those warnings weren't heeded. But first, he was one of this country's political giants. Longtime federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent passed away today at the age of 87. Current NDP National Director Ed McGrath joins me to share some stories and to look back at Ed Broadbent's life and legacy. Let's begin tonight, though, with the passing of a great guy, one of the most prominent and respected politicians this country has had the benefit of watching work and having been served by uh, Ed Broadbent, the former NDP leader, passed away today at the age of 87. Now, the Oshawa native spent more than 20 years, 23 years to be exact, in federal politics, including as NDP leader from 1975 to 1989. Uh, he, The Broadbent Institute, which he founded in 2011, announced his death this afternoon, saying, our country has lost a fierce champion for ordinary Canadians, an intellectual who strongly believed in building a good society Ed devoted decades of his life to fighting for justice and equality in Canada and around the world. He was first elected all the way back in 1968, winning by just 15 votes in his hometown of Oshawa. He had run for leadership and win in 1975. And he stayed there the whole time I was growing up. To me, the NDP was Ed Broadbent. And despite hopes of a breakthrough in 1988, they picked up 43 seats, which was a record at the time for them. It wasn't enough. He decided to step down and work on other stuff, such as human rights. Uh, he taught. He advised. He came back very briefly in 2004. I remember it well because when I was covering Parliament in that time, I remember laying eyes on him for the first time and thinking, wow, that's Ed Broadbent. I'm really here. It was Jack Layton who lured him back very briefly after a 15-year hiatus. He uh, didn't seek re-election in 2006, so it was brief. But he uh, gave a farewell speech to Parliament in 2005, and this little piece of it kind of sums up everything that made him so admired. We're on the same side, or we wouldn't be living in a small liberal democracy. And so often, because of the structure of this institution, and particularly the question period, we forget that. And we tend to think that those 25% of issues that divide us, and seriously and appropriately divide us, are only what matters. What's more important in many ways is a civilized, democratic, decent country is the 75% of things we have in common. 
Yeah, he was a firm believer in civility and getting things done and that politicians were elected to work for the people who put them there. The prime minister said today, Broadbent believed in the values of community and partnership, which drove his vision for a better and more compassionate Canada. Current NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called him a mentor and a friend, a titan of social democracy. And this from an old political friend and foe tonight, Jean Chrétien, on his 90th birthday. In Parliament, he was always very civilized. He was never nasty. Uh, we had uh, tough differences, but it's like playing hockey. You know, you can have, have, go to a hockey game and you can't bomb a guy in the ramp or be bumped. At the, after the game, you can have a, a beer together. <laughs> that is the most Kretze of tributes. Anne McGrath is the national director of the NDP, a former chief of staff uh, to several party leaders, including Jack Layton, and she joins me now. Anne, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. You know, every political party has their Mount Rushmore, so to speak, and I was imagining the NDPs, mm-hmm. and wow, Ed Broadbent's, Ed Broadbent, I mean, not to compare it to Mount Rushmore, but Ed Broadbent would have to have a prominent position there. Oh, he does. He does. He's, he's, uh, you know, definitely, you know, we've had some great leaders in our party and Ed is right up there for sure uh, as, as one of the one of our heroes. What are, what are your earliest memories of him? Because to me growing up, he was the NDP leader. I mean, from the time I was aware of politics till right up, you know, right through into my university days, Ed Broadbent was the NDP leader, always had been. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was the same for me. And, and uh, when I first started to kind of interact with him was probably in the early to mid 80s. And um, I was a, a young activist. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I recall that uh, we uh, I didn't agree with him on a few things, um, uh, particularly around uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Meech Lake Accords some of the constitutional issues that were uh, kind of raging at the time. And, you know, I was a young activist. And so I was very um, uh, critical of a lot of things. And he was um, so. Uh, kind, so generous, so open, even though I was quite critical, he really kind of uh, supported me um, in, in, st- in sort of staying involved, taking on uh, bigger and bigger roles. And uh, he, he was always like that. That One of the things I thought that was amazing about him was how completely egalitarian he was, because as you say, he was uh, he was a hero, like when I was younger, for sure. And uh, you know, whenever people would meet him, they would be kind of a, a bit in awe of meeting Ed Broadbent. But he didn't really differentiate between, um, you know, kind of world leaders and a young activist from Calgary. Yeah, there was what, something about him, and I felt, you know, I, I just met him a few times uh, at reporting, was that there was nothing disingenuous about him. Like that was not an act whatsoever. That was one hundred percent Ed Broadbent. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he was just incredibly supportive and, you know, and, you know, and always wanted to talk about politics. Like I really like some people may not like that all that much, but I really like that about him. I felt I felt like always he like the minute I see him and I saw him every every time it was like he immediately wanted to engage in a political discussion. He certainly loved his politics. I mean, he loved policy. He loved everything yes. about it. I mean, it was his calling for sure. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned it already. We, you know, it, with the benefit of time, of course, one forgets these things. But he lived through some tough times as NDP leader. He, felt he had to fill some very big shoes, whether it be Tommy Douglas still in the, you know, still in the somewhat mm-hmm. distant past at that point, then David Lewis. I mean, he had some big shoes to fill. He brought the party a long way in his 15 years. What, what do you think the secret to that was? 
Well, I think actually perseverance has something to do with it. Like, you know, you'll recall that in his early days, there were, you know, disappointments. And I, I you know, I saw that with Jack as well. Like, it's it's not unusual uh, for NDP leaders to to grow into the kind of, uh, you know, these, these kind of elder statespeople. Um, so he, he really, he kind of... Uh, he he had to work his way into the the role that he ended up playing um and and at the, in the and and you know as you mentioned for instance even his first victory which was, was at 13 14 votes it was you know landslide ed it was um <laughs> you know <laughs> and and the first time he ran for leader he lost he came in fourth you know yeah. but he's he, he had a lot of perseverance he had a lot of commitment he had a lot of passion for what he believed in and he was really dedicated to doing something in the, you know, in this country, he was really dedicated to doing something about income inequality. Um, before he left, uh, before he left uh, federal politics the first time uh, when he when he uh, retired, um, he reached out across the aisle to other parties and got uh, all party support for a resolution on ending child poverty. And he was very very committed to that. It, it didn't obviously. We're still working on it, but uh, he was able to get all parties to agree with that. And then, of course, um, I, I thought it was incredible when he agreed to come back um, when Jack Layton asked him to come and run in uh, in Ottawa Centre. That was a big ask uh, of someone who had been retired for some time. And, uh, you know, he always, you know, I always like to say, you know, we would put up the bat signal and he would show up. Guess who's back? He's back. We're celebrating the life and legacy of uh, Ed Broadbent tonight. He actually released that rap. I'd forgotten all about that. I was actually there for that in, uh, when he ran again in Ottawa Centre in 2004 and won Jack Layton. And Anne McGrath, who's with us uh, right now, helped bring him back And uh, after 15 years after he had uh, stepped down as party leader and sort of stepped away from politics. We're remembering him tonight. He passed away at the age of 87 today, the longtime uh, federal NDP leader. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was interesting to see him come back because it felt like even as even in the later years, he was always an important part of your party. I mean, he was sort of the Eminence Grise for a long time of the NDP. He was sort of your moral, I wouldn't call him a moral compass, but he's certainly the elder statesperson within the party. 100%, absolutely. And, and it's funny, you know, I remember that, 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 that yeah. whole um, nomination and, and, and his decision to come back to really to help us out, right, to get it to, to, to win the seat in Ottawa Centre and to uh, pave the way for us to be able to continue to win it with Paul Dewar and, and hold it for quite some time. But, um, you know, so, he, so he, he came back, he ran in that, in that uh, by-election, he, he, was, he, was, uh, he was an MP in our caucus, and that's a very unusual thing because, of course, so he was in a caucus with a leader, uh, but he had been the leader, and, and he was there as a, caucus, a regular caucus member, and he was there, he was very, I don't think everybody can pull that off, because he was very uh, supportive of Jack, he never, you know, kind of flexed his muscles as the former leader, as the former, uh, not only as the former leader, but as the most successful leader that we had had up to that point. Um, he he participated in caucus, he didn't, uh, you know, kind of lord it over anyone, or take up too much space or any of those kinds of things. And he was clearly there to support Jack Layton and to support the party and to help us uh, gain a foothold. 
Yeah, I remember uh, some of those election tours that we were on. I, I did some with Jack Layton. I mean, Ed Broadbent's presence, those were big shoes to fill even many, many, many mm-hmm. years later. I mean, he was always sort of the standard bearer, even for, for Jack Layton at that time. Absolutely. We, we relied so much on him uh, uh, throughout, well, throughout all of the years. And, and you know, in an election campaign, uh, we would always uh, call on him at some point to come and help us out. And he never said no. He always did whatever we thought was necessary and uh he was he was and, and he would come and and you know you know before any event that that we were going to do with him uh which you know he knew we were asking him to do it because we we needed the help but he would also take the time to uh to, to you know to have some kind of personal time with the leader uh giving his advice on on leadership on the party on uh, canadian politics uh like i said before he's just incredibly generous with his wisdom I was struck by his farewell speech to Parliament, which I was, I think I was in Ottawa at the time. And he did make a very impassioned and intelligent appeal for civility and to Mm -hmm. sort of bury the hatchet and to try to find our commonalities and to try to work together and remember what politics is really all about. Uh, Somehow, unfortunately, here we are 17, 18 years later, it doesn't feel like, doesn't feel like we've made a lot of progress on the one thing that I think uh, Ed Broadbent hoped would be his legacy, or at least hoped he would see before he passed. Yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, that there has been quite a deterioration, but I think that his legacy, uh, part of it, is uh, you see that the tributes that are coming in for him are coming from across the political spectrum. We saw, you know, Brian Mulroney, we saw Jean Chrétien. Certainly, I've been getting a lot of messages today, and I'm getting messages uh, not just from New Democrats. I'm getting them from liberals and from conservatives who have a lot of respect for him and who are uh, expressing their sorrow and their sadness at his loss. If you had to pinpoint one thing about about Ed Broadbent that made him such an admired politician, what do you think it would be? Uh, I would say that it was his uh, his ability to to um, uh, match his incredible intellect with his uh, ability to uh, also to to communicate uh, uh, regularly with people uh, about the concerns that they face. Like he never came off as a sort of a you know, kind of hoity-toity, uh, up-in-the-air kind of guy. He came across as a regular person uh, who shared the concerns that, that, that we all have. And, you know, despite the fact that he had, you know, university degrees and he taught at universities and he was very at home uh, amongst uh, uh, academics, he was really very connected to the shop floor and to the concerns of regular working-class Canadians. And he was very, very uh, conscious of the fact that no social democratic a party in the world has been successful without very, very strong ties to the labor movement, you know, and, and strong support for unions and, and strong connections to the working class. Yeah, he, he, was a, he was an incredible student of politics. Is there an Ed Broadbent story that we don't know that you'd like to share? Something that really embodies or encapsulates what he was like? Because I think we saw him in so many different guises as both leader and then as, as, as an academic and then with, uh, with the think tank, with the Broadbent Institute over the years. Uh, but, you know, there's always stories that circulate. I don't want you to share anything out of school, but is there any story that you really think encapsulates uh, Ed Broadbent on this day? Oh, there's so there's so many. I can, uh, but but I, I will tell you one time I was in uh, uh, on a holiday with my husband in uh, and we were in London, uh, England, and at the time uh, Ed was uh, teaching at a university there. It was after he had uh, stepped down, and he w- would teach part of the year in in England. And I met him for breakfast in, uh, in London, and we had a nice breakfast. 
And at the end of it, he was looking for um, movie tickets to a documentary on, I don't remember what, some international incident. And he was looking for these tickets. And I ended up, you know, kind of going all around to all of these theaters trying to get these tickets for him. And I realized after a while that, you know, after all this time there, I was still staffing at Broadbent even on my holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure he thanked you. I mean, that, he was a very, it struck me as, I mean, he was tougher than people think. I mean, I think he might have been a bit crustier oh, than people, th- people think too. Yeah. But he was internally yeah. sort of, he had a lot of integrity and he seemed to be very gracious at all times. Absolutely. Very kind, very kind, very generous, very, uh, you know, like he just, you know, he kind of the salt of the earth. But you're right. He was also very tough. He was very tough minded. Uh, he, uh, he he was he was always very clear about what his positions were and what he thought we needed to do. Well, Anne, uh, thank you so much. My condolences to the NDP family tonight, of course. He thank was a you. giant amongst you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me tonight. Thank you very much. It's been a sad day, but uh, it's great to think back on, on some of the great moments with him. Federal public servants, it turns out, warned the government two years ago the large increases to immigration could affect housing affordability and services. Uh, documents obtained by the Canadian press through access to information show that Immigration Refugee and Citizenship Canada analyzed the potential effects immigration would have on the economy, housing, and services as it prepared its immigration targets for 2023 to 2025. Internal documents obtained by the Canadian press through an access to information request show Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada analyzed the potential effects newcomers would have on the economy, housing and services as the department prepared its annual immigration targets for 2023 to 25. The deputy minister, among others, was warned in 2022 that housing construction had not kept up with the pace of population growth. But ultimately, the feds increased the number of of new permanent residents to 500,000 for 2025, a decision that drew considerable scrutiny. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Yeah, so there was warnings. Uh, I mean, this is not all that surprising. The deputy minister, amongst others, was warned in 2022 uh, that housing construction had not kept up with the pace of population growth. Quote, in Canada, population growth has exceeded the growth in available housing units, one slide deck reads. Uh, as the federal authority charged with managing immigration, um, the misalignment between population growth and housing supply, and how a permanent and temporary immigration shapes population growth. Uh, sorry, I, I missed a line there. But in other words, they were simply warning the government that, um, you know, we had a bit of a housing shortage and to bring a lot more people in would just exacerbate that. And that's not only bad for people already here, it's bad for people coming in as well. Uh, ultimately, as was mentioned, they decided to let in 500,000 people. People in 20, or, or increase the number of permanent residents in this country by 500,000 in 2025. Uh, you know, population grew by more than 430,000 people during the third quarter of 2023, making the, the fastest pace of population growth in any quarter since 1957. So clearly those warnings weren't heeded. Why? Why weren't they heated? I wanted to know. Andrew Griffith is well-placed to know. He's the former Director General at Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. And he joins me now. Andrew, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm not sure. Did this come as a surprise to you that the department was sounding the alarm uh, a while back at this point? Well, in one sense, I'm relieved that they were sounding the alarm because that means that they were actually doing their job, which is to provide their best advice to the political level in terms of the implications of possible policy changes. So I didn't know that they had actually provided this advice, but I'm actually relieved that we now have it out in the open that they were providing this fairly frank warning of some of the implications of the government's proposed policy. 
So listeners understand how this all works on the inside. There is the bureaucracy and then there are the political masters, right? And uh, the political masters don't necessarily have to listen to what the bureaucracy is telling them, as appears to be the case here. Well, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, but not much. So in one sense, you know, the, the mantra of a public servant is we provide fearless advice and then the government makes a decision and then we have to loyally implement. So the obligation for the government, if they're doing right, is they need to listen to us, but they don't necessarily have to agree with us. So that's the one distinction I made. So it's within certainly their right as the political masters to sort of say, thank you very much for your advice, but we're going to do this. In this case, uh, when, when, the, when the government's given this sort of advice, in your experience, is it simply the minister's call? Because, of course, there is an irony here that the, the immigration minister at the time, Sean Fraser, is now the housing minister, right? Uh, but is this a, a ministerial decision or is this, in your experience, a government-wide decision? Does this go up the ladder, in other words? It would go up the ladder because immigration levels have to be – the minister presents it to cabinet. So in the end, it's a cabinet decision. But the minister will make the recommendation. So, and of course, there'll be some consultations with PMO in that process. But yes, ultimately, it's a government decision. It's not just a ministerial decision. And what sort of factors would come? So this does. So we don't look at this, you know, through uh, on a, in a single lane or through a single lens. There would have to be other considerations coming into play when making these sort of uh, target decisions around immigration. Well, the government has been on this track for a number of years now. And even before they became government, they had an advisory council that was recommending a massive increase in immigrants. So they've been sort of wedded to this. The economic rationale that they used, I think it's a faulty one, is that more immigrants grow the economy. But of course, they only grow the overall GDP. They don't uh, grow the per capita GDP, which is the real issue that has been plaguing Canada for some years. I assume there are also some political considerations in terms of more immigrants means potentially more, more votes. And the like, but I think fundamentally it was an economic justification, a flawed one, but it wasn't just uh, political factors that that drove that. And of course, most of the provincial governments have also been pushing for higher levels, so they also have to um, satisfy um, provincial needs and the provincial desires. Right. I know there's a lot of players uh, in the game here. In your experience, how difficult is it for governments such as this one to change course uh, when they're presented with concerns such as the ones that were raised a few years ago around housing and around infrastructure, basically saying, listen, we don't have the capacity. We don't think we we have the capacity to meet the targets that you are setting. I think it would have required a major shift of the government. And I had sort of thought that over the past year with all the articles and, and commentary and analysis, that that would have provoked a, a fairly serious rethink. But in the end, the government only did a minor change, sort of flattening the, the level at 500,000, and is now starting, of course, to address some of the international student issues that we've seen. But to basically admit that your overall policy uh, is flawed in a major way and that you've been a bit to be unkind, asleep at the switch when you're not actually looking at these other factors, it's a really hard thing for a government to admit. And yet when you look at the at the equations that they've been looking at, it, it sounds so plausible. I mean, we, here we have this issue uh, that we've always had in this country where the majority of people who arrive tend to go to the similar places, uh, big cities, maybe not as much as in the past, but you know, certain areas attract a, a great number of new Canadians. We know that those areas have been struggling under under 
any number of issues. And ultimately, not only does it not do the country many favors, it doesn't do them many favors either if they're struggling to find affordable housing and struggling to survive when they arrive here. Well, it doesn't do anybody any favors, whether you're existing Canadians, new Canadians, or immigrants. And one of the things that I've actually found somewhat encouraging in all the debates and discussions that we've been having over the past year or so is that the issue about immigration is not about the color of their skin or their values or their beliefs. It's more about the fact that it's the practicalities. We don't have enough housing. Our healthcare system is is strained. Our infrastructure is uh, inadequate in terms of public transit and the like. So that allows it for a discussion that is actually that bring, can bring people together rather than separate them. So that's the one positive note I, I would make. Yeah, because you really don't want to slide into a situation where people are scapegoating new arrivals uh, for what have been what are longstanding structural problems in this country. Absolutely. Is there any danger that we that we arrive there, though? Because I see, I mean, it's so tempting and you see it. It's so tempting for politicians to wander into that territory. Nuance, perhaps, but still wander. Well, I think there are a number of factors that mitigate against that. One is that you cannot win a majority government and arguably even a government if you very openly attack immigrants and immigration. Because there are just simply too many ridings where immigrants and or and visible minorities form either the majority of a riding population or a significant plurality in a riding population so anything that is perceived as attacking them can impact on on electoral prospects and you know the liberals and the conservatives and to a certain extent the NDP are fighting over the same ridings so you've seen that the conservatives have been very reluctant to engage on immigration levels. So they do the safer thing, which is focus on it, administrative screw-ups and the like. But that being said, I mean, I, you know, one should never be complacent. And there are some people who are starting to make the uh, values question. Um, we're going to probably see some of that with respect to the Gaza visa program, because there are some issues that are related to that in terms of security and the like. But so far, we seem to be able to avoid it. And I think so, some of the overall electoral dynamics provide a certain degree of immunity to that, but not perfect, obviously. Andrew Griffith is a former Director General at Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Canada. We're talking about a report from the Canadian press today that uh, the department was warning of the government uh, as long as two years ago that uh, under cer- certain current circumstances that high levels of immigration as the government has pushed for a very long time, uh, we're putting a real strain on housing infrastructure and other and other stuff within Canada, and therefore it might be wise to sort of revisit them. That, of course, wasn't done. So, Andrew, I mean, we've seen the minister, the new minister, come out and talk about uh, maintaining high targets over the next couple of years, 500,000 people. We've had record inflows, um, and, and I want to say a lot of these people, a lot of people are already in the country, but record inflows in the last quarter of last year doesn't seem to be slowing down. Uh, what should the government do now, given they've had these warnings for a while, and these warnings appear to be coming true? Well, I think there are a number of things they can do. Uh, the government has started to send the right signals in terms of international students, uh, and particularly sort of the what the minister calls the puppy mill colleges that basically are just for immigration visas rather than any education. So I think that's probably the low-hanging fruit. The government could start to restrict the number of visas issued 
to those colleges, which are basically uh, the puppy mills, to use that expression, that would be provoke some opposition from the provinces and obviously from the education institutions themselves. But there's enough examples of abuse of the program, of exploitation of students, and uh, sort of all these little satellite fly-by-night colleges. The other thing is all those regulations that made it easier for students to work more hours can also be rolled back. You know, are you here to study? Then how many hours is it reasonable to, to allow you to work? And if you don't have enough money to come here, well, sorry, you know, we have to look at what makes the most sense for our economy and our society. And the other area that I think needs to be worked at, and again, this is on the temporary side, is just the number of temporary workers, because the government, again, has relaxed some of the requirements there. And this is very much in response to the business community pressures. But the business community prefers having more labor than actually the harder stuff of actually improving productivity and using more technology. So I think uh, the government needs to rethink about their approach to temporary workers and start to... Uh, cut back and sort of provide a bit of pushback to the ongoing demands. Um, and you'll have some provincial opposition there too, but I think that's just something that needs to be done. On the overall levels of permanent uh, residents, uh, immigrants, well, they've made their decision, so they're probably not going to change it the next year. But I still think the current labels are too high, and I don't think there's much substantiation for that. I can't expect them to make that change before the election. Whereas the other ones, they have some latitude to tweak the regulations and uh, and make adjustments there. Yeah, I suppose if they weren't willing to make it a couple of years ago, they probably aren't willing to make it now. I was surprised to read that between July and October, about three quarters of Canada's population growth came from temporary residents, uh, including international students and temporary foreign workers. So, I mean... There has been a system set up in this country that very much privileges or, or leans on on those groups, and uh, and it's going to be hard to wean people off it. Well, absolutely. I mean, it requires some political will, some political capital. Um, and the question is really, what is the political calculation here? And again, when I sort of listen to some of the minister's comments on international students, I think he and the government have made the calculation that's probably the easiest area to tackle, whereas he hasn't said very much on uh, the temporary worker side and on levels. I mean, he's basically he and the government have made their decision there. Yeah. It, it would would cracking down on the international student issue be enough, though, because it strikes me that while there are this is clearly an issue, it strikes me that there's a lot of international students here that are paying a lot of money to go to good schools that help fund those schools that in some ways, although it's clearly an issue, it's not the dominant issue. It may not be the dominant issue, but it's a, an issue that has high visibility. We're not talking about reducing the number of people going to U of T or UBC. Right. We're talking about the people going to Goma College satellite campus in Brampton, the clear abuses of the program and exploitation. Obviously, the institutions will protest and the provincial governments, because they are equally complicit on this, but the federal government does have the power to issue the visa or not. And uh, I think it's probably the easiest one to do. Whether the government will expend political capital looking at the other parts of the temporary residence, I'm not sure yet. I haven't seen much signals of that. So is it enough? Well, in my view, probably not. Is it better than what we're doing right now? Yes, it is. So, you know, in the incremental sense, it would it could be significant. Andrew, what would be a fair target? Because if 500,000 permanent residents for 2026 seems, uh, and next year, seems high, what would be what would be a fair number? Would it be 100,000 less? I guess it's it's difficult. I don't even know how those those targets are set. 
I, I, I don't want to play the uh, you know, the usual <laughs> ducking game on numbers. I would have thought they should have just frozen the levels at the current level, which is what, 400 or something like that, mm-hmm. rather than doing any further increases, because that I thought would have been a reasonable, strong signal that we're changing our policy without unraveling the whole sort of premise of it. Do I think that's the right level? Well, I'd actually like to have some expertise, you know, in terms of labor economists, other experts that would sort of say, okay, given what we know now, what would be some reasonable levels to have? I think, like, I think it sounds like they got that advice two years ago, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they did. They did. Yes. I don't know whether they actually put a number in the in the in the memo. I've actually I was actually kind of surprised that they released the advice, you know, because it's pretty embarrassing. Andrew, as always, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me and appreciate the conversation. You knew when we did this last week that I would be bringing some kind of curse on all of us because, of course, about a week ago, I think it was a week ago tonight, we spoke to Anthony Farnell, Global News' chief meteorologist, about the warm winter we were having. And he was like, well, brace yourself. And he, of course, he was right, as he often is. Um So again, as we were mentioning, the extreme cold has moved over Western Canada from the Arctic. It's bringing wind chill values, as Tina was mentioning, approaching minus 50 Celsius in some areas, surprising even people who know how to deal with the cold. Uh, This is Environment Canada meteorologist uh, Armel Castellan. He says the cold temperatures are locked in for the next three or four days, but the weather models haven't been conclusive about what comes after that. Currently, the temperatures are locked in here for the next three or four days. Uh, and then by Sunday, we start to lose the consistency or the, the convergence of models. We look at a lot of different models from a lot of different countries and ensemble outputs as well. And they don't all agree on how early next week is going to play out. There's, uh, there's a really strong case to be made about how um, cold injuries, you know, frost nip, frostbite, uh, potentially hypothermia and even death are really front of mind when we think about the public uh, through the the next few days. Indeed, uh, it is dangerous out there, no kidding. Uh, but we wanted to know a bit more about what, why is it that we feel cold? What does the body experience when it's cold, especially after such a warm stretch? It's pretty brutal, right? What is exactly what exactly is happening to our bodies and how best to stay warm? Uh, Chris Minson is a professor and director of the Human Cardiovascular Control Lab, co-director of exercise and environmental of the exercise and environmental psychology lab at the University of Oregon, where it's at pleasant seven degrees Celsius tonight. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Very much an honor to be part of it. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking we we're going to have to sort of translate things into Fahrenheit for you, but minus forty is minus forty in both Celsius and Fahrenheit, so we don't have to. Um, that's that's some cold stuff. What happens to us? What goes on with the body when it starts to get cold? Because uh, we all know how it feels, but it's hard to describe. Absolutely. And actually, the way you frame the question is perfect because uh, really, you know, cold is a, is a very difficult thing to wrap our head around a little bit because cold is not actually a thing. It's not a substance. What it is, it's a, it's a lack of heat, right? So, um, for instance, we say it's negative 40 degrees. Well, that may be very warm compared to absolute zero where there's no heat at all, right, in, in, in deep outer space. 
And so, and so um, what happens then is we have this perception, this perception of what cold is. So we perceive cold as being really, we, we, we feel cold as a warning sign to our body to make sure that we can do things to generate more heat so we don't actually lower our body temperature too much to unsafe levels. But cold is really a sensation more than anything else. It's a lack of, lack of heat somewhere in the body that we have these thermoreceptors that are picking it up and uh, responding to the, the heat or the lack of heat. Interesting. So it's not. So I, I, I you're absolutely. It makes perfect sense. I'd never thought of the fact that cold isn't really a thing. It's just. It's just a lack of heat. It's the lack of something, not the presence of something else. Um, do changes in temperature make it feel worse? Would you go sort of from hot to cold? Is it worse? Certainly, um, it, it can feel that way, right? Especially if you come, as you mentioned at the start of the the, the show, um, you've had a warm spell, right? And then so you now you're coming to the cold. So um, I give this example where, you know, I, I bike commute to, to work here. And, yes, it's much warmer in Eugene, Oregon, that is where you are typically. Our very, very cold days, people disappear for us when it's about, you know, negative four or five Celsius and that's it. Um, but I, I, I bike commute to work. And so I try and, you know, coming off the summer, I'm not wearing any, any, any sleeves on my arms and, and I feel great. But as soon as it starts to get cold, then I start feeling it. I feel, oh, I should throw a longer shirt on. So what I decided to do finally was just to start not wearing a shirt for a longer period of time. And I'll tell you that by, by you know, the time it's getting pretty cold out, I'm adapted to that. So we do adapt to cold stress and we do adapt to the cold um, sensations. Um, we desensitize over time. Um, and so there, there is definitely, again, I, I bring it back to the same point that, that cold is really a perception more than anything. What's interesting, too, I, I'm not sure this is – I was curious about this reading some interviews you've done in the past. Um, I sense that we all feel cold because it's a perception. We all we all perceive it a bit differently. Cold is different things to different people. It always feels like heat is heat, or, or, but not. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating. But cold is perceived by different people in very different ways. We, we experience cold in different ways. I'd say that's very true. Um, that, that said, there are a lot of people, and I, I do a lot of research on heat as well, and probably more on heat than I do on cool. And there are some people who cannot stand heat. They just hate it as much as other people hate, hate the cold, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a complicated thing in the sense that, uh, you know, why does one person feel additionally cold than someone else? Well, you know, a large part of our sensations are warning signals. So if someone who, who has very small muscle mass has a lower metabolic rate and tends to, tends to be cold quite a bit, that means they're just more sensitized to the cold. Their, their warning system is a little more ramped up than others. Um, I can use my, my younger sister as an example. She runs hot all the time. She's one of those people who gets in battles in the, you know, someone turns on the heat in the, in, in the, in the uh, office where she works and she freaks out because she wants it cold, right? So she's, it's just, it really gets a perception and, and certain people have real different sensitivities to those things. Right. Whereby I'd often seen over the years that the average office, because they're usually blasting with air conditioning in the summer, are too cold for most women, or not all women, but that generally there was this, I'm, I'm, this goes back a while, but that, that many times women feel uncomfortable in what is considered to be sort of a standard air conditioned office environment because it's too cold. Absolutely. And part of that's because women in general tend to have a little bit less muscle mass. And the muscle mass is what really helps us to keep our metabolic rate up. Um, this is one reason why people who suffer from a lot of cold, one of the best things they can do is take on an, a, a strength training program, trying to build their muscle mass up, try and do things to increase their metabolic rate so our internal engines that, that heat us up are running a little better. 
Right. And I, I read this that because this is something you get asked about a lot, of course, when uh, when we are when we don't have enough heat, for instance, I won't say when we're cold, but when we don't have enough heat, we the body tends to start to react. And that's when you get things like cold feet in bed, for instance, which I think everybody knows something about. Anybody who has a partner, yes, for sure, <laughs> knows about the, someone else in the bed having cold feet. Um, yeah, and what's interesting is that, you know, our bodies are designed to sacrifice our, our digits, our, our fingers and our toes, um, at, the, at the expense of saving uh, the rest of our body, the more important organs. So when we, when we feel a little bit cold, and, and um, the first thing we'll do is vasoconstrict or decrease the blood flow to our hands and to our feet and a little bit to our ears and some other places. And so, um, so because of that, we have less blood flow going through those areas, again, warm blood going through those areas, um, then, then those tissues will get cold. And there's no, there's no muscle, no metabolic tissue really underneath, very metabolically active tissue underneath the skin in those areas. So, we, so we, our hands feel very cold, our feet feel very cold. Right, which of course makes them at risk as well for things such as 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 frost, right? As when we're of course we're in these incredibly deep uh, deep freeze temperatures in parts of the country tonight, and if we're always warned about just how dangerous and how quickly skin can freeze when exposed, which is a different kettle of fish. But at the same time, what, you know, it's also good to keep in mind what what's happening to your body when you're getting that cold. Exactly. Yeah, and and there there is warning signs again, right? If your if your fingers and toes are getting very very cold and and uh, um, then that usually is a sign that, that you're conserving body towards your core and, you're, and you're, your body temperature is being threatened a little bit, right? It's not a reason to freak out and panic unless it's really, really cold out and you're in a place where you can't get them warm. Um, I will tell you that one of the interesting uh, phenomena that happens is that we do, on occasion, we'll have our, you know, everything, we'll have our blood flow restricted to our, our fingers and our toes, and then suddenly we'll get the burning sensation in them, right? Really bad burning sensation. And that's our, our, our body is at that point now releasing that constriction and allowing some warm blood flow to protect our fingers and toes. So as much as it's miserable, you're in the cold, and all of a sudden your fingers start burning like crazy, your toes start burning like crazy, that's actually a good sign that means that blood flow is returning to that area um, to try and preserve that tissue. But it also means if, you're, if your fingers are toes are really cold, you're also losing more heat to the environment as well. And I can tell you, it's, it's pretty hard to drop, you know, we're big chunks of meat. It's pretty hard to drop our body temperature dramatically. Um, and that's why we, people tend to get frostbite of fingers and toes, but, but survive oftentimes, right? It's not until really, really deep, deep, very cold temperatures and a lot of exposure like you're exposed, like you're experiencing now in those parts of Canada you mentioned, um, that then, then the risk of, of freezing death is very real. We're trying to warm you up on what has been a very chilly night, uh, just by about anybody's standards. It's below zero right across BC at every weather station. That almost never happens. Uh, And it is frigid on the prairies, uh, minus 30s in uh, Calgary and Edmonton and everywhere in between and beyond, uh, minus 30s in Regina and Saskatoon. It's minus 43 last I looked in Yellowknife. Set a new record today, a record low in Yellowknife. That's saying something. Uh, Minus 30-something in Whitehorse, minus 27, I think, in Prince George. It is chilly, and we were just talking last week about how winter was taking its time this year. Well, not anymore. Um, Chris Minson is with us. He's with the University of Oregon. We're talking about how the body reacts to cold. He is the director of the Human Cardiovascular Control Lab there. Uh, Chris, I mean, this is tough because it all depends, right? It all depends where you are, how cold it is. But what are some of the ways you can stay warm? What are some of the best ways? I mean, normally we used to sort of run in place, right? If you were waiting for a bus late at night or something, you just sort of keep moving, stamp the feet move your arms, right? Right. And, and those things certainly help. I mean, anytime you have, you do some kind of exercise, 
you're going to increase your metabolic rate and that's going to generate heat and that will keep you warmer for sure, right? The problem is people don't want to be doing that all day long. So really the, the you know, the kind of keys to really wanting to stay warm are a few things. The first thing I'll say is keep dry, right? If you get wet, you're going to be very, very cold. Um, water is a much, much better conductor of heat away from our bodies than air is by about 20 or 25 times. So if you're wet, you're in trouble. Um, the other thing is, is to prevent wind. Um, you know, the wind chill factor is a real thing, but it is also, in, in my view sometimes, a little overblown, meaning that if it's, you know, 20, negative 20 degrees out, but the wind chill is negative 50, well, if you're out and you're wearing wind-prevented clothing, then you're not feeling that wind chill. What you're feeling is the negative 20. So, um, you know, there's so many great products we have these days that are able to prevent wind cutting through our clothing, right? It makes a huge difference because the convective loss of heat through wind is, is profound. So you can prevent that with protective clothing. So the next thing is insulate. I mean, you, what your grandmother and grandfather used to tell you, you know, layer before you go outside, those things really work. Um, that's very, very, uh, very true to today. And then um, protecting your digits, right? Your your hands, your coal, your feet, those kind of things. Uh, protecting your ears, as you mentioned. All the things that are, you know, really exposed to the cold um, with uh, uh, without much tissue around them are going to be at risk. The, the, you know, here, there's obviously, you know, as we grow up, we're always told that you lose a lot of heat through your head. So you should really wear a toque. Uh, is that true? That, that's not really true. Um, the, okay. the, those are based on really old studies in which they had people um, in very cold climates not wearing a hat. So, but right. all that said, there's some truth behind it, right? Every myth has some truth behind it. And if, you know, oftentimes people don't wear um, an appropriate hat or took, right? And um, it may be just knit and, and therefore the wind's going through, they're losing a lot of heat. But if you're protecting your, 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 your head and your face, from the wind and the cold, then you're then the, the it's really about the surface area you have exposed. It's just not that great compared to like if you're wearing shorts, right? And, and both your legs are exposed. That's a lot more surface area. You'll lose a lot more heat through your legs. Well, Chris, uh, I, I love the fact that the wind chill is overblown. It's a great pun. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Very interesting. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. There is a group that have been waiting for a deep freeze for a while. I think it's about minus, last I looked, it was about minus 25 or in that range in northern Manitoba today. And that's good news for all those communities that rely on winter roads because the warm weather through December and into early January has delayed the opening of those crucial arteries uh, in and out of remote communities. They depend on those roads for the delivery of supplies and materials, everything from food and gasoline and much more. They are vital. Uh, now, usually they open or... In, you know, traditionally they open in the first week of January and close in early March. So already it's a pretty short season. So every week lost is indeed a big deal. Will this cold snap be enough to make an actual difference? And what are some of the longer term solutions? Uh, because this winter road season looks to be getting shorter and shorter over time. Barry Prentice is director of the Transport Institute and professor in supply chain management at the University of Manitoba. And he joins me now. Barry, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure to be here. It was interesting because, of course, just last week we were talking about how warm it had been. I know it's about minus 18, 19 in Winnipeg tonight, so I'll, I'll bite my tongue and not make it any colder. Um, but, I mean, will this cold weather, the situation, I guess, up to now, uh, predictably, they just haven't, it just hasn't been cold enough to open these winter roads yet. Well, you see, the, the, this is a kind of a misinterpretation because mm -hmm. the winter roads can hold certain traffic and not others. 
What right. you need or what's critical is to get a meter of ice because that's what you need to take a tractor trailer in. And of course, Off of the, the trucks, trailers right. are what bring in fuel and lumber and building materials and all the other things that people are waiting for. They can only get once a year. Uh, but the cars and trucks can pass on less ice. But still, with these warmer temperatures, it gets more dangerous for sure. Right. So in other words, this is really about bringing in those supplies that are so crucial because it's the only time of year those supplies can come in and out in that, on those, in that way. So it's, it's a big deal. Will this cold weather help? I mean, clearly this cold weather might help a bit, but is it enough? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a very good question and, and it depends for how long it persists. You know, one of the things that we've observed in the last few years is that you can get really cold weather like this for a few weeks, and all of a sudden you're getting a, a couple of days that are close to you know freezing or, or melting, I guess I should say. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, if you have that for a week, now you have to go back out and start reflooding the the spots again, and especially uh, some key areas like rivers. Of course, where you have running water, don't freeze as well, and lakes don't freeze as well. So that can be you know an area where it'll stall the project out for another week before you get going again. So. Uh, a warm spell in the middle can be a problem as well. Right. So you you need uh, you need a good a good run of cold weather to make sure that uh, <laughs> that it sets. Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated by these roads, having never been in on one. By the way, I have to confess, uh, yeah. but they are still a really they are really important to a relatively sizable chunk of, of population uh, in the north of specifically. I guess in this case, we'll talk specifically about Manitoba. Well, yes, you're right, and, and it is Manitoba. Ontario also is really important. Every year we build about 2,400 kilometers of these winter roads or ice roads, and Ontario builds about 3,000. So if you were to link those all together, it would go all the way from Montreal to Vancouver. So that's wow. the kind of road building is done every year. Now it's, of course, just ice and snow that's packed together, but still it's, it's that distance. Yeah. Well, how, how is it done? Because it must be one of those arts. I mean, there must be, there must be a, art, a science and art to it. Well, there is, and again, you know, today we have tools to measure how deep the ice is. So you can have a sled that you take over behind a, a skidoo, and you can find out whether or not you've got that meter of ice that you need. But they start out in the fall uh, going over, and it's also very handy if you have a cold fall with no snow because then all the swamps and the muskeg freeze down really fast. If you get a lot of snow early on, then it insulates those areas, and so now you have to run across them with a skidoo and, and pack that snow down to get the frost into the ground so they will freeze down. So it, depending on what the fall is like, it, it adds more work or, or change. And then, of course, in areas where you have to pump water out to thicken up the ice, uh, the natural ice is always better than the pumped out ice because you know, just the way it is, uh, it seems to have more strength. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting, I find, is it's not just temperatures. You know, we, we focus on that, but snow is also really important. And it can be an asset or it can be a, a, a deficit because if you get that snow too early in the year, as I mentioned, it'll insulate the swamps. But you need a certain amount of snow to be able to put into the river areas so you can get the, a smoother entrance and exit from those places where you have to go down to the river or the lake. So sometimes they're hauling snow to build up these areas, but they don't get enough snow. And then also, of course, the, the ice thickness is important, but the ice is in a way sort of like a, a monster raft. And as you put more weight on that ice, eventually it starts to sink. 
And a lot of that weight, of course, would come from snow. So in a year when you get a lot of snow on the ice and they're, and they're also moving the snow to the banks to pack it to have a clear space and, and so the ice will freeze better, you get to a point where all of a sudden you start getting water coming up over the edges. And once you get slush, you're done. You, it, you can't push the slush around. So, you know, there's, there is a real art to making these roads. Right. Uh, and I suspect so. a perfect year would be a cold fall, a bit of snow, and then a nice cold, dry, cold, dry January and February. Yeah. With some snow. <laughs> yeah. With some snow. With some snow. Again, I mean, it's... Know, every year's different. <laughs> yeah. I still find it remarkable that we can put, you know, heavy vehicles carrying lots of stuff onto those kinds of roads. I mean, I've watched the documentaries, obviously. I mean, they're yeah. on TV, right? Um, but it's remarkable. And, and the communities themselves, this is the only time of year that they can move in a lot of this really heavy stuff. Uh, is that right? True. That is true. And, but it's also really important for the communities themselves because it's the only time they can sort of freely move amongst their different communities. Mm-hmm. You know, because most of the, of the time, if they're water barriers, they can boat there if they have a continuous waterway, but you don't always have that. And the roads between the communities allow them to go and visit relatives and and see things as well. And that's really important culturally for the people who live there. Now, I know that last year the this you know the roads opened. I guess they opened for heavy. As you mentioned earlier, that's a bit of a misnomer. They are open for lighter vehicles uh, earlier, but for heavy vehicles, they opened. I guess in early February last year. So there was about a month and a bit. Uh, are we seeing that trend year over year now, yeah. where they're opening, where the season is getting shorter and shorter? Well, for the tractor trailers, it is. And and there's also a study that was published just a, a two years ago uh, by some climate scientists who actually looked at the lakes and, and the thickness of ice. And it was their uh, prediction that when we get to the temperature 1.5 degrees above the whatever that base level was, uh, we won't have enough ice to support the tractor trailers. And right now we're at about 1.3 in the north. So we're approaching that point where it's going to be really touch and go to have any kind of service like that with trucks over the over the lakes, and and right. even so, in many places, they're at half loads, you know, certainly starting out, and of course the trucks also have to be spaced out more. In some places here in this province, they've actually built wooden bridges, so you, you know, there's a bridge in the middle of nowhere, and but that's where the road is leading up to, of course, when it is necessary, and that that's helped a great deal. So. There's been a lot of effort to try and move the, the roads off the lakes as much as possible to allow the, the road to have a bit more uh, strength, I guess you'd say. Barry Prentice is with us this half hour. He's with the University of Manitoba. We've been talking about uh, winter roads, their importance, uh, and uh, the difficulties this year. Barry, I guess long term, if we're looking at a situation where these you know, this part of our, our, our transportation infrastructure is going to become less and less reliable over time. We're going to have to look at other solutions. And I suppose the obvious one would be would be all-season roads, but sometimes easier said than done. Well, in, in more than one way. I mean, in the first place, climate change is affecting the infrastructure that is in permanent roads as well as it is the ice roads. Uh, there are many mm-hmm. places where you have active permafrost areas and the, the, uh, when it melts, the water runs away and the, and the road collapses and becomes like an accordion. And you, you can find pictures like that on the Internet if you wish to look for them. Uh, so that's a problem and affecting some runways as well. Uh, and this is going to increase as climate change goes forward. But if that weren't enough, it, it's also just the sheer cost. I mean, people don't appreciate how difficult it is to build roads in the north, especially where you have permafrost. But 
even without that, you know, swamps and muskeg and rock outcrops and a, a lot of water crossings. So as a result, you know, there was a study done here looking at putting in a network on the east side of Lake Winnipeg, some two, 825 kilometers, I believe it was. And it was in 2010 dollars, 2.8 billion. That worked wow. out to 3 million per kilometer. That was 2010 dollars. In today's dollars, we're definitely closer to 4 million. So if you take the 5,000-odd kilometers of roads at $4 million a kilometer, that's $20 billion to convert the roads in Manitoba and Ontario to gravel roads. And then you also have to maintain them, you know, just plowing snow but maintaining them because it's a vast distance. And, of course, with climate change, you know, what will happen with the uh, the surface is, again, just a question mark. So... That's a problem. Another problem with roads is just getting permission to build them. The Ontario government has already decided, you know, they're going to build a road to the Ring of Fire, which is in northern Ontario, and it will connect some villages going out of Pickle Lake. Uh, the trouble there is they've been already three years, four years, and they still haven't got the approvals to even start it. So I don't think we've got the time to wait to build all the roads necessary in the north. And uh, so, again... yeah. It's, it's yeah, just a, a problem. Yeah, and an expensive. Yeah, I mean, when you put the numbers that way, it feels like that's just something that's never going to never going to get done. What would other solutions look like then? I mean, what would other <laughs> modes of transportation well, we, look like? Yeah, we, we've actually been looking at a solution for some twenty odd years, which is to a, a brand new generation of cargo airships. Well, most mm. people remember. I've seen pictures of the old Zeppelins from the nineteen thirties. Well, they worked. You know, they flew across the oceans uh, on a regular basis, and they flew at uh, 120, well, actually 145 kilometers an hour was their cruising speed. So they're pretty fast, and they're actually very safe, except for one day. One of them didn't have a good day, but the yes. technology itself was proven 85 years ago, and we've come a long way in 85 years. You know, just think of a a Model A Ford in 1930, and think of a a modern Ford hybrid today. I mean. It's like a world of difference. Well, the same thing happened in aviation. So the ability to build airships, there's no technical barriers to doing it. You know, it takes a lot of money to get started because they're big machines and they need a big hangar and there's a certain amount of risk to doing anything new. So, you know, it, it takes, that's why it's been held up. But there are a couple of projects around the world that are getting very close now and we're hopeful that that's going to be a, a solution because the airships... You know, they'd easily be able to carry 30 tons. In fact, the the airships from the Zeppelin era, if they're built today, that size airship, it would carry 100 tons. So it's well within the scope of what's been done in the past. And 30 tons is about as big as any indivisible piece going into these communities. So it would be, a, you know, it could carry in literally a, a house and just pop it right down in the, in the community. Now, I don't want to give people the idea that you just land anywhere and you plop a house down anywhere. It would have to have its own place to land and, and transload and so on safely, as would any transportation. But it certainly could be done. And, and in fact, we've done a lot of research to show that it's economic and possible. Uh, and I gather, of course, we're not the only country facing these. I mean, there's other parts of the Arctic, other parts of, that, of, of the North that are obviously contending with similar problems. To the degree that's true in, in Alaska, but a lot of their communities are around the coast. 
And where you have coastal access, you know, you can get shipments in maybe a couple or three times a year. I mean, it's not uh, it, that much better than the ice roads, but at least you have some. It's still very expensive to do things. Uh, the other way that we get things in all the time, of course, is with small airplanes. And those airplanes land on gravel runways. There's only about four or five runways in the whole north that are paved. All the rest are gravel. So a gravel rim, runway, it can't take a jet because you'll put a stone through the engine. And, of course, they're typically pretty short. And some of them are even built on islands, so hard to extend. But, you know, the cost of building runways to carry bigger airplanes to come in and the cost of airplanes as well. I mean, we've, uh, we looked at this, I think it was just before the pandemic, we were up north looking at this. And at that time in Manitoba, it was $2 a kilogram to take things into these communities by air. So you just imagine what that, well, that's actually why food costs there are two and a half to three times what we pay here. Yeah. I, I noticed that when we when I was in the far north. It's, it's remarkable. Oh, yeah, uh, the, Barry, sticker, uh, the sticker yeah. shock is terrible. <laughs> it is. It is the $28 pineapple. Uh, Barry, yeah. thank you so much for your time tonight. What a fascinating conversation. I, I know much more. I was hoping to learn a lot more about winter roads, and now I have. <laughs> well, anytime I'd be very pleased to chat with you. This story should warm your heart a little bit. If the best things in life are free, um, a good thing... A good way to find it might be to join something called a buy-nothing group. You know the old term, uh, one person's garbage is another person's treasure. Well, this organization is completely built on that premise. It started off very, very small. Uh, Two friends created this little experimental local gift economy uh, in Washington State called the Buy Nothing Project. This is back in 2013. It it has become a worldwide social movement. There are groups in about 44 countries. There's been some ups and downs with the initial organization called Buy Nothing. Uh, But now, not only is it done on Facebook, there's also an app. But beneath it all is this idea that when you're looking for something small or something that you need, Maybe one of your neighbors actually has it and doesn't need it. Or maybe you need something that your neighbors would, people would easily throw away, right? It's, this, it's not just this idea of sort of a circular economy or waste not, want not. It's really the fact that a lot of times someone has the thing you need and they don't need it and they would never guess that you needed it unless you found some way to communicate. Uh, one of the movement's co-founders was nice enough to say yes to my interview request. Uh, Liesl Clark is the one of the co-founders of the Buy Nothing Project alongside a Rose, uh, uh, alongside her friend, and she joins me now. Uh, Liesl, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I've known about this because it sort of popped up. I've known people who've taken part on Facebook over the years and so on. I didn't know a ton about it. How did the idea came about? Because the origins of this are fascinating. Well, the origins, there's a little bit of a backstory in that a good friend of mine, Rebecca Rockefeller, and I discovered, just like a lot of people, surely, who live along uh, shorelines, that there was a lot of plastic washing ashore with every high tide. And one of the solutions that we thought that we could come up with uh, to pose to our neighbors was to ask them uh, to literally buy nothing for a week. And, and, and we didn't mean nothing like don't, you know, that, that you couldn't buy food. We meant all those little knickknacky type things that you might need to go to a, to a, a, a hardware store for or um, even clothing for your kids or toys for your kids. Just ask your neighbor first if they might have that item. And the reason why we wanted to launch that as an experiment was because of all the plastics. And we thought we could just try to stave off the the amount of materials that, you know, manufacturers are producing. 
Yeah, I mean, this is an idea that's that's not new. I think it it goes back. You know, I I've often hear stories back in the day of you know from my uh, my late grandmother and so on about how people would help each other out that way. If you needed to borrow something, you just go next door, and we sort of lost that. But how does this work? How did you make it? How did you bring it into the twenty first century? So yes, it's exactly that cup of sugar model with your your neighbor. Really, for us, a way to bring it into into this century was to launch it on a, a social media platform. So, of course, we started on Facebook. We now have our own app that we're developing. And we, you know, so many people are on Facebook. So Rebecca set up a group, a private group, and then we invited all of our friends and neighbors and they invited their friends and neighbors to the group. And within a few minutes, people were asking for little random weird parts like, oh, you know, that toilet paper roll thingy, that spring that's inside it. Someone said they they needed just that, just that little spring. And lo and behold, a neighbor actually had that part. And so there was all this sort of collective, like, oh, we can do this. You know, you could you could have carafes for coffee makers, coffee carafes matched with the base. And people were giving away, you know, hand-me-down clothes from their kids, lots of toys. And, um, but especially those sort of matches that we were making of things that were clearly headed towards the landfill. There was an aha moment that we all collectively had together where we realized we can, we can do this. We can buy less, share creatively and, uh, and, and really have an impact here. And just reading through some of the examples, it is remarkable what's, what people need that other people have and don't think anyone else would ever need. You got it. So, I mean, I, I I tell the story of how we had a few, you know, concrete little uh, cinder blocks. <laughs> so, you know, and you think cinder blocks, nobody's going to want a cinder block. And I just had a, sort of one and a half cinder blocks. And I posted a picture of these ugly looking gray things and just thought no one is going to want this. And within minutes, a neighbor said, this is exactly what I was headed to the store to buy because I'm building a chicken coop and I need to raise it up a little bit. And I needed essentially one and a half of those. And so there, there she was coming to, to my door to take it away from my home. It was, it was really pure joy for me. The aha moment. One of the the parameters are interesting because I think you've already mentioned it. And we talked a bit about the, the you know, sort of the cup of sugar theory. This in part was also to be quite limited geographically so that, in fact, people would get to know each other while borrowing. So in other words, it would become the sort of self-perpetuating uh, routine of sharing this stuff. Yes. Yeah, so when you create a, a simulation of, of a community, a virtual community, because these are virtual communities, but they are person to person in that we are connecting in a hyper-local physical way with each other. So that's what we did. We sort of um, kind of put our arms around our own community and said, let's just try to define it as this. Of course, we live on an island. So that was quite easy. So we said, anybody on Bainbridge Island, join this hyper-local gift economy, and we'll try to keep it kind of to, to this um, geographical location. And, uh, and, and what happens is, you come to know your proximal neighbors. I think one of our social ills is that we have lost touch with that kind of, uh, you know, dependency upon each other. We weren't asking for sugar from each other. We were literally going to the store and the neighbor actually had a 50 pound pack, um, you know, bag of sugar that uh, would have probably been very happy to share that with you. So um, I, I think that this is this is really a, a, a social experiment that enables us to come to know our neighbors, which means we become so much more resilient as a community because we start taking care of each other. 
it grew exponentially, though, didn't it? I mean, I think it started off, was it 2013? So just a little more than a decade ago now. And it just took off, right? It just took off. It did. And I think people were experiencing this joy of, you know, getting rid of their stuff, let alone acquiring new to them items without having to pay a penny. Um, So there's plenty of joy in that. It saves a lot. Uh, And then other communities heard about it and they said, well, we want to do this in our community. So Rebecca and I set up a a system where we can we can scale this and we have our, you know, intellectual property, meaning, you know, the group descriptions and the and the guidelines and the and the rules and then creating these sort of self-same mirroring groups everywhere so you can scale it to anywhere in the world. And in fact, with the app, too, um, you can set yourself as the center of your community and define how far you want to share. You can just do the cup of sugar model of a half a mile, or you can go as far as 20 miles and uh, connect with people in that way. Yeah, I know there, there are uh, there are buy nothing communities right across Canada. They are right, right around the world. At one point, you had a bit of a reckoning with using Facebook, though. And I, I gather that became I mean, every time you start something, it starts to take on a bit of a life of its own. And I gather this, that's exactly what happened here as well. But Facebook became a bit of an issue uh, for you personally, for, for those who had created it. I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of people who are not on Facebook. So I will say that the number one asked question that we would get by email were from people who were saying, for for various reasons, some are political, some are just personal, uh, and some are just technical. <laughs> I'm not on Facebook, and I really want to participate in a local gift economy. What are you going to do about this? <laughs> and can you can you provide us with some alternatives? So that's when you know Rebecca and I always all along knew that we would probably have to start developing our our own technology, you know, to really customize the experience. Facebook private groups are wonderful. I mean, they are an, an amazing tool for, for this, but um, they do require an admin, which takes a lot of time to, to admin these groups. And so we wanted to try to take some of the burden off of the admins so they could be community builders in the app. They could be recognized in the app and still kind of play that role, but not have to do all the work. The app does that work. I'm speaking with Liesl Clark. She's one of the co-founders of the Buy Nothing Project. You may have seen it on Facebook. You may have seen it elsewhere. It's really sort of a, a community that shares, and it's a way of cutting down on consumption. It's also a way of getting to know each other, right? Sort of that whole idea of relying on your neighbors to share stuff that you may need. And also, of course, you know, one person's uh, garbage is another person's treasure, as the saying often goes. Uh, Liesl, for now, so I know there is now an app. I know many, there are other sort of, there have been offshoots of what you built in the first place. Uh, but I guess what you've built really has found a niche, even though sometimes within the Buy Nothing Project itself, it's been been a bit rocky over, over the years. Yes, I, I think I think every community that starts to participate in in these ideas comes to realize that we really do need a circular economy in our in our community. And you know, circular economy may sound really technical and kind of weird, but it is a, a means for us all to collaboratively consume, to take stock of the materials that we already have within our homes and our community at large, and share them with each other rather than going out and just buying more and trashing what we think no one may want, but in fact they do. So um, yes, a a bit of a rocky road at times, um, but I would say for those who have um, built offshoots, uh, we're all about that. I think that's wonderful. They take some of the burden off of us. The more permutations of these ideas, uh, the better. We really want to bring about global behavioral change. This has really become 
a full-time gig for you, though. I don't think it was meant to be at the outset, but this has become sort of a life's work. So I know you're a filmmaker by career, but this has really become something you've devoted a ton of time to over the past decade. It has. Um, I can admit in all seriousness that uh, there is no time to do anything else. Uh, we have over 10 million people on Facebook who are participating in Buy Nothing Gift Economies, and we have 1.2 million in the app. And an app is, it's a, it's a bit like a film. You're in production, but you have this live production that is happening 24/7. And of course these live productions called <laughs> called apps, they get bugs or you know there there there's so many issues that can come up. Um but you're constantly iterating and creating new features and trying to meet the needs of your of your community. So for me it's a full-time job more than full-time and I'm still a volunteer. I will say I do not plan on that being the norm. I would love to be able to pay our volunteers a living wage. I think it's fair. We are providing a public service and uh and we're looking for, forward to the day that we can do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up sort of with parents, you know, back in the early 70s, mid 70s, who had lots of hippie ideals and so on. Of course, there was always conflict within those, you know, very altruistic organizations. This has never been about profit, right? I mean, at some point, I guess you have to find a way to make things work and even pay volunteers perhaps one day. But it's never been about earning much, at least as far as I can tell. No, of course not. Um, we 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 want to fill this niche, and it is clearly needed. So to do that, yes, the app we have a, a sustaining member uh, subscription model. So it's it's quite like the PBS model in the in the United States. Mm -hmm. We are not a nonprofit, but we do have a uh, fiscal sponsor, so we can receive grants and we can receive donations. We are a B Corp for public benefit, which is sort of a slightly different kind of uh, corporation that is uh, where you build into your mission that you are for public benefit. And so we we are excited to be able to actually try to bring in, first of all, we have to bring in funds to actually pay for our <laughs> expenses. And mm -hmm. our expenses are, they they grow with every month and they grow with more, more people that are joining uh, the various platforms. So nothing really is free. So that is probably our big learning curve. Uh, Rebecca and I were paying for the project out of our own pockets for the first decade. Um, and, and now we're able to bring in uh, a little bit through the sustaining memberships and uh, and people who are being you know kind enough to offer donations and contributions. And yet the spirit of what you build originally still carries on, right? Whether it's through the Buy Nothing Project, just the whole idea of doing this, even though, I mean, it, it, it's not a new concept, but the way you've brought it into the 21st century is interesting. You've sort of harnessed technology to allow people to do something, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that maybe we had lost touch with. Yes, Um a lot of the, some of the ideas behind this I had learned in uh, by doing some of my film work in Nepal, uh, making films for National Geographic and for Nova, a science series on PBS. And my family and I, my husband worked with me on the films. We spent a lot of time in really remote villages on the Tibetan border. And we came to learn about this, this way of living uh, in a circular economy, in a gift economy where a community takes care of each other. Everyone, you're, you're only as good as your weakest member is sort of what, what I came to learn, as well as people taking stock of their materials economy and sharing what they had with each other. So there are no shops in these communities. Uh, uh, the nearest one is a four-day walk away. So you have to make do with what you have. So when I, I was came back to the States and was so excited to share these ideas with Rebecca, 
because we were against those on those, you know, those summers during our vacations with our kids, we would find so much waste washing ashore, so much waste going into dumpsters that was perfectly usable. So we sort of combined the ideas and thought, well, this is an ancient concept that uh, certainly we're not coming up with, but let's use modern technology to try to reach as many people as possible. You must have some incredible stories. I mean, I know there are so many now, but you must have some incredible stories about things that people would just snap up that you would never expect anyone to want. I, at one point, I think I was reading about dryer lint being super useful for something, and I can't remember what it was, but it really does lay lay bare that idea that one person's garbage is another person's treasure. Exactly. So dryer lint, who knew? It can be a wonderful, you know, raw ingredient for fire starters. Some people use them for their little, you know, hamsters and rodents that they might have. They make excellent bedding. But, you know, you'll see people who will give away, you know, a woman who has uh, is giving away her wedding ring. So, you know, there's, we have a story of a woman who kind of, uh, she ended up not getting married. <laughs> and there was a lot of baggage associated with that wedding ring. So you can imagine that for her, it was, you know, a very positive thing, a positive step for her mental health to be able to pass on this wedding ring to to someone else who could really, really use it and, and um, absolutely love it. So that was a remarkable story. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to, to focus solely on Dryerland. I just thought that was an incredible example. Where can people find you now? Because I know there's still Facebook and there's the app. Yes. So um, on our website, which is the Buy Nothing Project or buynothingproject.org, you can um, look up your community group uh, through Facebook, um, but y- y- they're not mutually exclusive. You can also download the app uh, through your app store or through Google Play and uh, and start participating right away. Well, Liza, thank you so much for your time and for walking me through uh, what has been a pretty remarkable decade for you, uh, for you and Rebecca. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I I appreciate the conversation. Let's head to The Hague now. South Africa's lawyers have told judges at the United Nations top court that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza, and they're pleading with the court to urgently urgently order Israel to halt its military operation. Israel, of course, has vehemently denied these arguments. The International Court of Justice President Joan Donahue remarked that South Africa said the latest Gaza war is part of decades of oppression of the Palestinians by Israel. South Africa contends that the acts and omissions by Israel of which it complains are genocidal in character because, I quote, they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group, that being the part of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. Of course, Israel denies the allegations saying it is battling militants in a war of self-defense after Hamas's deadly attack on Israel on October the 7th. Uh, This case will take years to resolve, but South Africa is actually asking the court to order an immediate ceasefire or suspension of Israel's military offensive in the Gaza Strip. Um, Gaza Strip, rather. Israel will present its arguments tomorrow. The Canadian government still hasn't taken a position on this, just saying that they're following the situation closely. With more, Jack Cunningham is program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History and an assistant professor at Trinity College at the University of Toronto. Jack, thank you. Not at all, Ben. Pleasure to be with you. For listeners who may not, who may hear The Hague and sort of maybe think International Criminal Court, uh, the International Court of Justice, what is its role? Well, it's a UN entity and it uh, basically uh, makes uh, rulings on matters that are brought before it by uh, uh, signatory states. It's a UN body, uh, for what that's worth. 
and it uh, it's its verdicts are not uh, necessarily effective in terms of changing the behavior of the states that are uh, found guilty of this or that but uh, in some circles they do carry a fair amount of weight what is south africa arguing here what does it need to what does it need to prove or, or what is it arguing uh in the short term in front of the icj well, South Africa is arguing that Israel's actions in Gaza constitute genocide. Now, that's a very hard charge to prove. Uh, you have to prove genocidal intent. In uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that in criminal law, there's something called specific intent. That means you have to prove that you intended the results of your actions. They can't be the uh, the unwanted but inevitable byproduct. And I would argue, and I'm sure Israel would argue, that the civilian casualties in Gaza are the unwanted but inevitable byproduct of military operations against an enemy that uses its own population as human shields and hides its military infrastructure behind civilian infrastructure, private homes, mosques, schools, hospitals, and so on. It's very tough to take out an enemy like that without inflicting, unfortunately, uh, massive civilian casualties. Right. In this case, Israel will no doubt argue, I think they already have, that the attacks of October the 7th uh, necessitated a response, and this is the response. Yes, they will argue that the attacks of October uh, constituted an act of war. Uh, Hamas started the war, they will argue, Israel is trying to finish it. And uh, I, I, I personally find that a persuasive argument. Uh, there are other things Israel will point to in its defense. One of them is the extent to which the Israeli uh, military has gone to uh, avoid civilian casualties. We've got numbers for some of this stuff. The IDF made 50,000 phone warnings sent out 12 million voice messages and 14 million text messages to warn civilians to leave Gaza. They distributed leaflets with detailed maps showing the routes to relatively secure areas. Uh, they also, where possible, engage in a practice called roof knocking. That's when you launch a, a low-yield or non-yield projectile onto the roof of a building to alert its occupants that an attack is impending and that they should leave. Uh, Israel will argue that uh, all of these actions to minimize civilian casualties prove there was no genocidal intent and that it is Hamas and not the civilian population of Gaza that is the target of Israel's military operations. That said, what is South Africa leaning on here? Because I know they've used uh, not only you know reality on the ground in Gaza, but they've also used comments made uh, by different Israeli politicians to suggest that the, the end goal here is to you know, essentially uh, annihilate Gaza, right? I, I think they've used those quotes that have been taken from uh, different Israeli politicians over the past few months. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind that some of the more inflammatory and disturbing quotes actually come from people who are pretty far from the centers of Israeli decision-making. And a lot of the other ones are taken quite out of context. I mean, there was one reference by an Israeli cabinet minister to dealing with human animals. Uh, he made it quite clear that he was talking about Hamas, not the Palestinian population of Gaza. And in fact, he followed that remark by observing that Israel is going to try to uh, minimize civilian casualties and urge the civilian population to leave. 
the same tactic has been applied applied to Prime Minister Netanyahu's statements about uh, a relentless uh, and forceful response. Uh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't gather from the uh, the South African brief that he was referring specifically to Hamas, not to the population of Gaza as a whole. As to the idea that uh, Israel is seeking to uh, annihilate Gaza. Uh, well, again, I have to repeat the point that uh, Hamas is fairly well dug in in Gaza's civilian infrastructure. It's almost impossible to destroy Hamas militarily, which is Israel's legitimate military goal, without doing tremendous damage to the civilian infrastructure. What what, what would this hit, John? Because I, I, if I remember correctly, um, IJC cases can take years to wind their way for a decision to be made. It can take years for uh, for the court to reach a final decision, but in the interim, it can issue what's called a provisional finding, and that could include a call for a ceasefire. And you could argue that that would uh, intensify the international pressure for a ceasefire and perhaps give political cover for governments that are sitting on the fence uh, as to whether or not they should call for a ceasefire or not. One thing we should point out to listeners, of course, is that uh, the court's rulings uh, are, are not, they, they have no way of enforcing them, right? Which is which is a pretty important point here. That That is a crucial point. I would argue that their rulings are essentially political statements uh, and, not, uh, and not legal judgments. Jack Cunningham is program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History and an assistant professor at Trinity College, both with the University of Toronto. We're talking about South Africa today, presenting its case uh, that Israel's war with Hamas amounts to genocide against Palestinians at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Uh, and of course, Israel uh, denies this vehemently. They'll be making their arguments uh, in front of the same court. Um, Jack, when, when you when you look at, at Canada's position all, on all this, uh, Pretty much uh, silence, silence at this point, or you know, or that usual term. We're watching how this unfolds. Perhaps not a surprise. Uh, perhaps not a surprise, in in so far as uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's Liberal Caucus is deeply divided over the uh, over the over the conflict in Gaza. There are some members who've actually come out publicly and said that Canada should support the South African charge. There are others who have uh, argued that the South African charge is utterly meritless. So the divisions are pretty deep. Uh, it's arguable that Canada is in perhaps a difficult position insofar as we've made a uh, a big deal in the past out of our allegiance to international institutions and our support for the ICJ. Uh, one of the uh, one of the commentators on this in the uh, Globe and Mail mm -hmm. was uh, Michael Byers, who teaches uh, the, who teaches on some of these matters at uh, UBC, I believe, and he argued that Canada, in fact, should uh, let the uh, the process unfold and be uh, be happy to do so. Uh, because of its uh, support for the ICJ and because of the importance that the ICJ continues to have in the minds of some people. Uh, others, such as former Justice Minister Erwin Kotler and former Supreme Court Justice Rosalie Abella, have argued that uh, that Canada should, in fact, uh, denounce the South African charge as as baseless. Uh, what uh, What the government will actually do, that's hard to say. I mean, so far, the uh, Trudeau government has tried to uh, uh, please almost everybody 
on this issue by taking sometimes incoherent and inconsistent stands on on the conflict. And as a result, it's managed to alienate those on pretty much every side. Uh, I don't know if they'll do any better this time around. I'm uh, I'm I'm not optimistic. Yeah, trying to please everyone and pleasing no one at all. Uh, there is obviously, and you mentioned this already, a lot of this is is political and it's about international pressure. Uh, the symbolism of South Africa bringing this case to the ICJ can't be understated. No, it can't, given that uh, South Africa had uh, had, had uh, endured decades of apartheid and that uh, the most vocal critics of Israel, in fact, contend that it is an apartheid regime. Uh, that uh, that does give the charge credit uh, c- credibility uh, with with uh, with uh, some states, particularly those in the in the global south and those that uh, uh, identify themselves very strongly with uh, the cause of anti-colonialism. On the other hand, uh, it's important to keep in mind that uh, Israel was actually founded as a state in res- in in part in response. To genocide, mm-hmm. Israel was founded after the Holocaust as a refuge for uh, for uh, for Jews, um, and it's downright Orwellian to argue that Israel is acting genocidally when, in fact, it's dealing with an enemy, Hamas, whose charter is explicitly genocidal, calls for the annihilation of Israel, calls for the extermination of Israeli Jews. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, really uh, topsy-turvy land. It is. Uh, and I guess in this case, as you mentioned, an ICJ decision, a final decision, could take a very long time. I understand, I know neither of us are lawyers, I understand the barrier or, or the bar that they need to cross to prove this case in the long run is a very high one. But in the short term, the ICJ could issue what would be called in sort of layman's terms an injunction or at least a declaration of some sort um, that would that would call for, say, a ceasefire or the guarantee of humanitarian aid and so on. So there are things that could happen in the short term given this process. Yes, there are. I'm not, I'm not sure how much difference they will actually make. I mean, the fact that Israel sees itself in an existential uh, struggle against an enemy determined on its uh, on its annihilation means that it's really unlikely to pay a great deal of attention to uh, what others say uh, unless they have uh, have tangible leverage over Israel in a way that the ICJ uh, does not. Uh, Breaking Hamas militarily is an absolute must for Israel because its whole national security strategy rests on the idea of deterrence. Israel is surrounded by enemies, and the way it makes sure that nobody tries anything is that if somebody does try something, they emerge with a bloody nose at the very least. And that would be seriously undermined if Hamas were to commit the atrocities of uh, of October and get away with it and survive. I suppose perhaps the the ultimate test of whatever the ICJ decides in the near term will be politically and it will be on allies such as Canada and, and the U.S. I mean, the U.S. has been uh, unequivocal in this. Also, Antony Blinken coming out and saying that uh, that the case against Israel is, is it makes no sense. Uh, but but there will be, I suspect, more political pressure on Israel's allies if, in fact, the ICJ comes out with something relatively con- which condemns the war in Gaza at this point. There will be more political pressure. I suspect a lot of it will come from those who are already uh, critical of Israel if they haven't uh, necessarily uh, come out explicitly for a ceasefire. But uh, 
those who are staunchly in Israel's corner will probably not be moved by this. I mean, the Biden administration has signaled that it uh, it regards the South African case as utterly groundless, utterly meritless, and I expect it to uh, stick to its position pretty much regardless of any uh, any temporary declaration the ICJ may issue. And for Canada, we shall see, I suppose. Yes, <laughs> we will. Jack, thank you so much. Not at all, Ben. Thank you for your time. Take care. Wow, wow, wow.